I'm going to read you from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus gave us what we call the Sermon on the Mount, in which he addresses many down-to-earth, practical, everyday life issues that we face as much today, of course, as they ever did in Jesus' day as well. And I want to read from verse 33 to verse 37 where Jesus is giving a series of contrasts between what you have heard and what I say unto you, in which he goes behind the surface issues that they have heard and uh, tried to live by to the core heart that lies behind those issues. And in verse 33, he says again, you've heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. But keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. That's as far as we're going to read. And in these verses in Matthew chapter 5, we can't escape the fact that the Christian life is different to that of the world at large. Every issue Jesus raises here sets his people apart from the norm. We are to handle anger differently, he tells us in verse 21 to 26. We're to treat sex differently, he tells us in verse 27 to 30. We're to approach marriage differently, he tells us in verse 31 to 32. And in all these issues, it's not simply that we are to be more disciplined than other folks, but that we have different resources by the indwelling presence of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is what equips us to live differently. That, of course, is what the Gospel is about. As God said in Ezekiel 36, verse 27, speaking about the new covenant that would come, He said, I'll put my Spirit in you, and here's the result, and move you, that is, from within, move you to follow my decrees, and be careful to keep my laws. And that's why if our, if our hearts remained untouched and un ruled by the Holy Spirit, our behavior will remain untouched and undirected. Well, now we come to another issue which relates very much to the ones that have gone before. It's the issue of Christians and the truth, I'm calling it. Now, what I'm going to share with you is not the kind of issue that will lift the roof, not that we ever do that very often, but sometimes you say, wow, that's exciting, that's something I really need to get hold of. This may seem in some ways a little more mundane, but I want to suggest to you what I want to show you is one of the steel pillars on which your life is going to be held together and structured well. Because this issue of telling the truth letting your yes be yes and your no be no, are actually the issues that have impacted what Jesus has talked about earlier in these verses. You see, adultery is about breaking your word, having said to your spouse, forsaking all others. You do not forsake all others. 
You see, it's not an attractive, available girl that makes a man commit adultery. It's the lack of honesty of his own heart that makes him commit adultery. He does not keep his word. And if that door is closed and bolted in your life, that you stand by your word, a lot of these issues don't actually arise because your word has already determined them. But if that door is left open, you'll face the temptation again and again. Divorce, another thing Jesus talked about, is about breaking your word. Because the commitment you make at marriage is until death us do part. But yes did not mean yes, and no did not mean no. And so when Jesus moves on now to talk about truth, and speaking truthfully, he goes to the very heart of so much else in our lives that come out of that root character of honesty and truthfulness and integrity. Now I want to talk about three things from these verses. I want to talk first about truth in communication. And then we'll talk about truth as character. Something deeper than just what we say. And then truth as a commitment. Letting your yes be yes, your no be no. As Jesus says here, let me talk first of all about truth in communication. Communication, of course, is an essential part of life. It's last week, I was in California speaking at a conference and I lost my voice for almost three days. It's not quite back to normal yet, but it means I couldn't speak, uh, which was a relief to most people there, I'm sure. But uh, it also meant that I became very, had a very real sense of isolation because I could not communicate even at mealtimes, we had uh, several doctors there at the conference. They all seemed to have different views about the best thing to do about my voice. But uh, it, it was very isolating to not be able to communicate. Communication is part of life. But we live in a day that is unsurpassed in the amount of communication, the mass communication that we deal with. We talk about the Internet as an information highway. We talk about IT, stands for information technology. It embraces the whole computer world, but it's about information primarily. We have 24-hour news services on radio and television, and uh, that doesn't go back very long. We're bombarded with information, and so as a result, because there's so much of it to get our attention, often what is communicated becomes shallow, sometimes superficial, sometimes sensational. And so politicians speak in sound bite terms. Something can get picked up on the news. It won't take more than 20 seconds to report. We hear about a profession of spin doctoring, where spin doctors are not concerned about the accuracy of what is communicated. They're concerned about the effect of what is communicated. And so truth becomes a very fluid commodity in the process. And that's the world in which we live. I heard about a fable once of a king who asked his cook to prepare him what he considered to be the best dish in the world. And the cook boiled him a tongue. Now, when I was a boy, we used to eat tongue once in a while. I've not eaten tongue for years and years. But, you know, a big cow's tongue would appear on the table. Boiled, I think, was the way we cooked it. And then the king said, now I want you to prepare me the worst dish in the world. And the cook prepared him a boiled tongue. 
And the king called in the cook. I asked you to prepare the best dish you made tongue. I asked you to prepare the worst dish you made tongue. Why have you given me the same dish both times? And the wise old cook said, because the tongue is the best thing in the world when it's wisely and kindly used, but tongue is the worst thing in the world when it is unkindly and poorly used. And so it is. The Bible has a lot to say about the tongue. Proverbs 18.21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. That little thing waggling in your mouth. You can make people laugh. You can make people cry. You can encourage people. You can discourage people with it. You can build people up and you can tear people down. You can lift people and you can condemn people. You can refresh people and you can intimidate people with the tongue. Words can build marriages and words can destroy marriages. Words can develop friendship. Words can break friendship. Words are powerful. Look at the power of words in history. When Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, gave his Gettysburg Address in Pennsylvania, lasted only about two minutes, about 230 words or something in that region. But it turned the tide of the Civil War and has become the most quoted speech in American history. When Winston Churchill became Prime Minister of Great Britain in the first year of World War II, as John F. Kennedy said of Churchill, he marshaled the English language and sent it into battle. And historians would say that the oratory of Churchill was a big factor in uniting the Allies and bringing the eventual victory of World War II. Martin Luther King, who followed a, a policy of nonviolence, only had his tongue and his word was powerfully used. And many of us have listened to his speeches. I have a dream. It was one of his most famous. When all God's children, black and white, sit down together as brothers and sisters and play together on the streets, he said. I had a tape recording of a speech he made in Harlem on his return from receiving the Nobel Prize in Oslo. And I used to listen to this often, driving my car. It would often move me to tears. He talked about being on the mountain in Oslo. He said, I've been up on the mountain. I've been amongst kings and rulers and leaders. I don't usually spend time in their company. He said, I've enjoyed being on the mountain. They treat me well on the mountain. But, and he paused, I've got to get back to the valley. And he talked about the valley as the place where he lived and worked and did his business and the valley where people were hurting and the valley where people didn't get the sunlight. And he had this beautiful graphic description. And he used to listen to that driving down the road and as they say, often move me to tears. Look at the power of the written word. Karl Marx said, give me an army of 26 lead soldiers and I'll conquer the world. And for those of you who are very modern, don't know what those lead soldiers might be in the days of printing in the 19th century. The lead letters of the alphabet. That's the army with which I will conquer the world, said Karl Marx. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg in Germany and precipitated the Reformation which transformed Europe and gave, to a large extent, what the Western world is today. Words have their power. Now the first thing Jesus talks about here is about oath-taking. 
He says, you've heard it said for the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. Now, when he says you've heard it said long ago, he does not then give a direct quotation from the Old Testament. There are allusions to this, especially in Moses' writings in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, where, where Moses said, if you take an oath, make sure you keep it. Oath-taking, of course, is swearing by something bigger than you are that I promise you what I say is true. And then Jesus says, but I say to you, do not swear at all. Now, some people have taken this as a prohibition on taking oaths in a courtroom or taking an oath of allegiance or putting your hand on the Bible when you make a statement and so forth. I grew up with Christians who held this view and, and I respect it, but personally I doubt very much that is the intention here. Because swearing is not in itself wrong, God himself swore. Uh, Hebrews 6.17 uh, says there, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. That was in conversation with Abraham, after Abraham had been willing to offer his son Isaac in sacrifice, and God held him back from doing so. But then God said to him in Genesis 20:16, I swear by myself, declares the Lord. Now that would be enough to justify the fact that swearing in itself is not the issue. Jacob got an oath from his son Joseph. Joseph extracted oaths from his brothers. Jonathan asked for an oath from David in the Old Testament. Paul took an oath in Romans chapter 9 and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So oath-taking is evidently not intrinsically wrong. The point is, that Jesus is making, is that oath-taking is not the only time you tell the truth. Because what had happened was that they said, now if I say this on oath, you have reason to believe it, I'll stand by it. But if I don't say this on oath, hey, you don't know if I'm going to tell the truth or not. That's the issue. Because actually, oath-taking is itself, if you think about it, a confession of dishonesty. That you say it. You know, and you sometimes hear people in conversation want to convince you what they're saying is right, and they'll say, you know, cross my heart and hope to die. As we used to say when we were kids anyway. You know, because normally maybe you can't believe me, but this time really, really believe me, you know. It's a confession of dishonesty. And the alternative that Jesus puts to them is that you don't need to swear in order to be believed. You need to be believed because you speak the truth. Period. And the background seems to be that they were swearing anyway over little things. I mean, swearing is usually by something bigger than you that gives value to what you say because of its, it's bigger than you. It's like giving a verbal security to what you're saying. You know, if you want a financial loan, normally you've got to convince the bank from whom you're getting the loan that you have some kind of uh, security for the loan. If you're getting a mortgage, that your house is worth more than the mortgage, so that if somehow you default and can't pay your mortgage, the value of the house will offset it eventually. So it's something bigger than, than you. And if you haven't got resources that will uh, match the loan, then you probably won't get the loan. Well, swearing was a bit like that verbally. 
God swore by himself, because there's nothing greater for him, of course, that he could swear by. But the Jews did not swear by God, because, as you may know, the Jewish people did not pronounce or write the name of God. They wrote the consonants uh, Y-H-W-H, which probably best translates as Yahweh, but we don't know what the, what the real word was. And uh, it's been traditionally read in English as Jehovah. But they wouldn't use the name of God, so they swore by lesser things. And Jesus talks about some of the things. You swear by heaven, verse 34, by the earth, verse 35, by Jerusalem, verse 35, by your heads. You can't make one hair white, one hair black, but you swear by your heads. And in Matthew 23, when Jesus raises this subject again with the Pharisees, he talks about them swearing by the gold on the temple, uh, thinking it's greater than the temple, or by the gift that's on the altar of the temple. These lesser things. And Jesus says about that, what collateral is this? What kind of value does this have? And uh, so it's not that swearing itself is not valid, though Jesus challenges the kind of swearing that they engage in. And, And sometimes on solemn occasions, it may well be necessary in a court of law, for instance, or you're taking an oath of office of some kind, that is entirely reasonable though taking oaths would be the exception rather than the rule, though it seems it had become fairly normal for people to take an oath just to convince people they were telling the truth. Instead, and this is the real issue we want to address in verse 37, simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And here's why, and this is important, because anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Now that raises the second point I want to talk about. If the first point was truth and communication, second point I want to talk about is truth as character. Because Jesus says if you're not telling the truth, your yes doesn't mean yes, your no doesn't mean no. Do you know where it comes from? It comes from the evil one. You see, the measure to which we tell the truth is probably the most important thing about us. The truthfulness of what we say derives from our character, which is either true or it's corrupt. Let me read you what Jesus said in John 8, verse 44, talking to the Jews. He said, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. Listen, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. Now says Jesus, lying is the devil's native language. It is his mother tongue. When he goes into default mode, he lies. Now it's interesting that Jesus should say that, because if you take time, as I have done, to look at the times that the devil speaks in the Bible, which aren't many, when he verbally speaks, he actually never tells an outright lie. Because there's more than one way to lie. Lying is his mother tongue, but he is very subtle in the way he lies. What he normally does is ask questions designed to lead you, lead you into deception. So, for instance, in Genesis chapter 3, in the Garden of Eden, he came to Eve and he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
Now he's not making any, he's not affirming anything, he's just asking a question. Did God say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? Is God being unreasonable? Now of course God has said no such thing. God actually said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. But his innocent sounding question was packed with innuendos and suggestions designed to deceive. It's a clever way to lie, but it's lying. By the way, when you find yourself reasoning that God is unreasonable, and looking in these ethical issues that Jesus raised in the Sermon on the Mount, if you sat here, maybe some of these Sundays saying, this is unreasonable, I don't like this. I'll tell you whose voice you're listening to. It's the voice of Satan. He makes God unreasonable. He asks questions. This is unnecessary. When Satan appears in the book of Job and talks to God about Job, God said of Job, he is a blameless man, he is upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. That's a wonderful description to make of anybody. And Satan comes back and says, does Job fear God for nothing? He doesn't tell any lie there. He just throws in the question, do you not think Job has a hidden agenda behind all this? You think Job fears God and is blameless because he actually cares about you, God? Or has he got his own agenda here? It was a question designed to cast doubt. And of course, a lot of gossip is like that. A lot of gossip isn't saying, hey, did you know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? It's kind of asking a question designed to provoke the thinking that maybe so-and-so is so-and-so after all. When Satan appeared in the wilderness and spoke to Jesus and tempted Jesus three times, each of his temptations began with this word, if you are the Son of God. He didn't say he wasn't the Son of God, but he's throwing it out, or trying to. It's a clever way to lie, but lying is his nature. To ask questions that carry implications that blacken somebody's character. By the way, lies are usually a cover-up for corruption. That's why I call this point truth as character. There are quite a lot of lies in the Bible, but they all lie, as far as I can see, they all lie to cover up something else. Cain was the first to lie. Having killed his brother Abel, he was asked, where's your brother? He said, I don't know. Where he is? Am I my brother's keeper? He just actually buried him. But he lies to cover up the fact that he's just killed him. Abraham lied to Pharaoh about his wife. He went into Egypt against the will of God. And his wife was very beautiful. And Pharaoh thought, I like her. And Abraham realized what was going on and said, she's not my wife, she's my sister. You know, you can have her, she's my sister. He lied to cover up his own being in the wrong place. Jacob disguised himself and lied to his father. He pretended to be Esau to get the blessing that belonged to the firstborn that he wanted to get. He was a cheat and a liar. David lied after his adultery with Bathsheba. 
Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, agreed together to lie to the church in Jerusalem that the money they were giving, they said, was the money they got for some land that they sold. But it was not the money they got for the land. It was a part of it. They didn't have to give any of it. But they gave the impression, we're more generous than we are. And Peter said to Ananias and Sapphira, you've not lied to men, but to God. Lying is the native language of a corrupt heart. Therefore, lying is a symptom, usually, if not always, of something much deeper. And no wonder it tells in the book of Proverbs that God hates lying. It says, in fact, there are seven things God hates, and two of them have to do with lying. One of the things God hates is a lying tongue. A second thing is a false witness who pours out lies. And Proverbs 12:22 says the Lord detests lying lips, but then in contrast, he delights in the man in men who are truthful. He detests lies, he delights in truth. Contrast. And Proverbs 26:28 says a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and that is always the case. Usually the intention to hurt which is why we're lying. And you know, at the end of the book of Revelation, there's a list of those who will face the fiery lake of burning sulfur, as it says in Revelation 21. And it lists some of those people, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Why? Because these vices including lying, are symptoms of a corrupt heart. Therefore, in verse 37, back in Matthew 5, Jesus says, simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. For this reason, anything else comes from the evil one. Because when you lie, you're actually speaking the native language of hell. Now, if Satan is the father of lies, and lying is his native language, in contrast, God's native language is truth. Isaiah 65 and verse 16, twice in that verse, speaks of God as the God of truth. In Revelation chapter 15 and verse 3, the angels sing around the throne of God, and they sing, just and true are your ways. In John 1 verse 17, John describes Jesus when he was incarnate and became a man. He described him as full of grace and truth, full of truth. And Jesus himself said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. This is more than God simply being true. This is God being truth. It is his nature. And truth is his native language. Therefore, as we are brought into relationship with God and his purpose in our lives is by his indwelling spirit to make us like himself, then one of the Evidences and when the outworkings of that is going to be in the fact that we are true. Psalm 51 verse 6 says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Truth in the inner parts there. That is in the heart. Not just truth on the surface, you know, make sure you talk the truth. But actually, the truth on the surface derives from the truth in the inner part, the inner part of a person's life. Psalm 15 
And verse 1 asks the question, Who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may dwell in your holy hill? And then verse 2 answers the question, He whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, and who speaks truth from his heart. He speaks truth from his heart, not because it serves his interests, but because it is true, and truth has become his native language. It comes out of his heart. And the person who speaks that which is true does so because he himself is true. Of course, you can speak what is true when it's convenient and it's beneficial and your heart be corrupt. But the scripture goes back behind all of that, that the inmost place, the heart of a person is true. A friend of mine tells her that when he went, left school and went to work in a bank, but a few weeks into his work, his boss said to him one day, so-and-so may call today, and when they do, tell them I am not in. He said, I can't do that. He said, not only can you do it, I'm telling you to do it. He said, no, no, I can't do it because it's not true. Give me something else to say maybe, but I cannot tell a lie. And his boss was angry with him. And later he went into his boss's office that afternoon. He said, I want you to know that if I won't tell a lie for you, you can be sure I'll never tell a lie to you. And the next morning when he got to work, his boss called him into his office. And he thought, uh-oh, what's going to happen now? And his boss looked him in the eye and said, I'm going to make it my business to make sure you rise to the very top of this bank. Because his boss recognizes not just that this guy tells the truth, this guy is true. And you, probably many of us here, face that kind of dilemma in our workplace. And you have a choice. Are you going to be true and let that truth permeate what you do in every respect? Because if you allow yourself to not be true, you're allowing the poison of the native language of Satan to influence and make you. And you can be sure that as the fruit connects to the root, if the root is good, the fruit is good. If the root is true, the fruit is true. If you start to put some poison of lies into the fruit, it'll work back to the root and you'll corrupt the root. It works both ways. The theme of the Sermon on the Mount is that what goes on outwardly is merely a symptom of what is going on inwardly. That's why Jesus says murder is a symptom of anger, adultery is a symptom of lust, divorce is a symptom of disloyalty. And taking oaths, he's saying here, in order to believe is a symptom of dishonesty. That's why you have to take the oaths. So eliminate that need by being true, through and through, right from the innermost part, your inner being, out of the things that you say. It's about character. You don't put on character, you are your character. You put on behavior sometimes. But character is what we are. And it's truth in the inner most being. But the third thing we'll talk about just for a couple of minutes is truth as a commitment. Truth in communication, truth as character. But we've got to commit ourselves to this. Our commitment to God involves a commitment to truth and to be true. Now let me talk about this practically. 
It doesn't mean we have to be completely transparent all the time because sometimes it's not appropriate to be transparent. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, still on the Son of Man, tells them not to be transparent in some things because he says there, Matthew 6 verse 17, when you fast, this is in contrast to doing it to be seen by men. When you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting. In other words, he says almost, you know, disguise it. The rest of us neither need to know that you're fasting, nor do we actually want to know that you're fasting. But in contrast to displaying what you're doing to be seen by men, he, he says, this is private. You don't have to be transparent about that. Of course, it's still all about integrity before God. This is being honest before God. You know, it's interesting in, in, in Luke 24 when Jesus met those men on the road to Emmaus. It says, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further. But they said to him, stay with us. And so he went in to stay with them. Now, the way Luke writes that, he probably would have welcomed an invite, but I'm not going to, you know, make it obvious. I'm going to act as I'm going further. And when they say, oh, would you stay with us? Oh, thank you very much. I didn't think you'd ask. You know, sometimes it is appropriate there not to let everything hang out. Let's also be very realistic. Not every promise that you and I make can be kept. We, we make our promises sometimes with proper intentions, but we made unrealistic promises. Now, we need to be very careful that we don't do that very often, but sometimes that happens. You know, there are elements of pretense that we all have that are hard to eradicate. You know, some of us like to keep up appearances, and it's kind of very difficult. You know, to be honest, some of us don't actually know who the real me is. That's the problem in itself. But it's not an easy problem to resolve, because there's so many layers sometimes we build around. But the point is, when we allow truth in the innermost being to be true, and God there, who is truth, to work It'll begin to break through some of those. But, you know, if you're driving in here on a Sunday morning, you're having a squabble with your wife in the car, you know, get over it before you walk in here. We don't actually want to know. <laughs> we don't need to see it written all over you. Just sort out on the way home if you didn't sort out before you got here. <laughs> you know, there's discretion, of course, in where are, are we honest in that sense. But when it comes to our speaking, when it comes to what we are deliberately conveying, then we need to be characterized by, by truth. If I can just share something personal with you in, in our own family, as uh, parents, we have placed the highest value on telling the truth in our children's upbringing the most severe discipline was reserved for lying because when you're dealing with truth or lies you're dealing with character when you deal with character you're dealing with all behavior and consequently they didn't lie very often just a couple of times was enough to get the message and I tell you they are better people because of it 
they'll one day be better wives and a better husband because of it. They'll be better parents because of it. They'll be better citizens because of it. When you deal with that truth issue in a child's life, you're dealing as a knock-on effect with a million other issues which the rest of their lives people will be grateful for. And if the one who indwells us is the truth, then that truth of who Christ is, who lives within the Christian, will be expressed in our personal lives, in our family lives, in our family dynamics, in family relationships, in our business life, in our work life. It won't simply be an ethic in our work life, it'll be the criteria from which all our other ethics derive. And may I say, if I can be so bold as to do so, to say a word to those of us who are parents of children, only say to your children what you will stand by. I sometimes hear parents and children in discussion where the child says, can I have? And the parent says, no. And the child knows full well that's not the end of the story. That's just the beginning of the negotiations. And the child will whinge and whine and sulk and plead and beg until the parent just for peace changes their mind and they're actually making life very difficult for themselves by doing that. Actually what the child is crying out for is the security of the reinforcement that no means no, the issue's over, move on. Not open to negotiation and discussion. I remember a friend of mine who's a lawyer was representing a teenage girl in a case where she got into trouble and he met with her parents and her parents said to him, we don't know why she's treated us like this. We always gave her everything she wanted. And my lawyer friend thought that's probably exactly why this has happened. She's used to having what she wants. If you make a threat to your child, stick with it. You say to your child, if you do this one more time, I'm going to punish you, then you had better punish them if they do it again. Your yes must be yes, your no must be no, otherwise the child becomes insecure and miserable and whiny because they don't know where the boundaries are. The teen years can be a hard time, but often it's as teens that teenagers are actually longing for reinforcement. And holding your ground will sometimes be tough. It'll pay off because teens need rules and teens want rules. They actually need somebody else to be responsible for their boundaries. And within those boundaries, they'll feel safe. Of course, they'll kick against the boundaries. That's what boundaries are for, to run into and fight against. But they'll be secure. And hard work though it is, it'll pay off. Your yes must be yes, your no must be no, says Jesus. And so here's the issue which, although we wouldn't put it up in the headlines in one sense as being the exciting, dramatic issue of telling the truth, we see things like, you know, lusting and adultery, those who kind of get our interest much more quickly. But this is the steel pillar of your life. We are men and women who are true. Your yes must be yes, your no must be no, says Jesus, because anything 
Beyond this comes from the evil one. That is, you'll give him a foothold in your life. I asked you as I closed, what actually is your native language? What is the kind of default position? Is it deception? You say, well, no, I wouldn't be here if it was. Hey, we're not that naive. You might well be here, and it is so. But there's deception in your marriage, deception in your work, deception in your relationships, deception with your parents, deception with your children. You're allowing the poison to trickle back to the heart and root of your character and who you are. Anything that is not yes means yes and no means no comes from the evil one, said Jesus. And we need to come in repentance and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me, cleanse me, go and put it right, go and tell people the truth that you've been deceiving. And allow the Spirit of God who lives in you and who is the God of truth, who is the truth, to express this character of truthfulness. It's probably, probably the most important thing about you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we confess the corruption of our own hearts. We confess the seemingly quick fix of a problem by covering it over and being deceptive about it. And it doesn't fix it at all. It only aggravates it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, we'll be men and women who come clean before you, who are willing to stand honestly before you and honestly with others. Help us, we pray in our marriages, to be honest and true to each other and before each other. Help us in our workplaces to be those to be counted upon for our integrity and honesty and truthfulness that our light as the Lord Jesus said in the Sermon that may shine before men they see our good works but they praise our Father in heaven for they realize that God is the source of our honesty and truthfulness and integrity Lord make this real for us as people we pray in Jesus name Amen